Um, if you have your Bibles, um, turn to Psalm 90. I'm reading from the NIV today. Um, there's no extra ESVs <laughs> around, so. <laughs> All right. Give me a minute until I get there. If you don't have a Bible um, and would like one, we'll get you one. I don't have it today, right now, for you. All right, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moment. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? <laughs> for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God, indeed. Um, for those of you who are new, or for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cameron Ogilvie. Uh, I am the newest elder, though I am not elderly. And, uh, and uh, I also coordinate music with this community. And uh, in my day job, I am I'm actually a Master's of Science student uh, at the University of Guelph, I'm studying agriculture. And it's, uh, it's related to this, that I went down to a conference in Indianapolis at the beginning of uh, December, and they were handing out these books there, uh, 40 Chances by Howard Buffett. For those of you who don't know Howard, Howard is a famous philanthropist. Uh, he is also a farmer, and he went to a farming workshop where the speaker at the workshop pointed out that for the average farmer, uh, they really get to only grow 40 crops in their lifetime. So from the time that they take over the farm to the time that they die or pass on the farm to their children, they only have 40 chances to grow something. And when you put a number like that on how productive you are going to be in your life, it brings a lot of things into perspective. Like 40 chances is not a lot. And so we, uh, we come to New Year's Eve day, a day that I 
I'd say for probably the most careless of us, we even pause to reflect on our lives and realize, wow, we don't have a lot of time. We've only got 40 chances. And so we've got some common ground here. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to feel this. Like we, we all know that our lives have an expiry date. We all want to make the most of our lives. And I think we all have some sense of eternity as well. Um, these are some quotes that I pulled off of Google, interesting quotes. Uh, a teacher affects eternity. He can never tell where his influence stops. Henry Adams. From my rotting body, flowers shall grow, and I am in them, and that is eternity. Edvard Munch, a Norwegian painter. This is interesting. Politics is for the present, but an equation is for eternity. Albert Einstein. <laughs> And when asked if he feared death, Richard Dawkins interestingly replied, I fear eternity. I think eternity is an alarming concept. I think it is even more frightening if you're there than if you're not. So the way I want to put it is, I want to spend eternity under general anesthetic. Interesting. So we all have this sense of eternity, like we put up these memorials, these statues, to try and stretch our lives into it. And maybe some of us more than others want to participate in eternity. But today, as we wrap up this series on talking honestly with God, we're going to talk today about life. Talking honestly with God about life. And Psalm 90, in case uh, you haven't already felt that, it's, it's a beautiful place to have this conversation. Um, before we jump into the psalm any more than we already have, give you some context. So Moses, the guy who writes this, um, he writes three psalms that are recorded in Scripture. So one of them is Psalm 90. The other is recorded in Exodus 15. This is as God has just brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt and they, they come out through the parted Red Sea, and then Moses sings this psalm. That's in Exodus 15. The other psalm that he writes is in Deuteronomy 32. This is at the end of Moses' life. And so he sings this just before he dies. And so the question is, well, when does Psalm 90 fit into this? And I think the answer is likely between when they come out of slavery in Egypt and before Moses dies which corresponds to the time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. So to give you some context, if you don't know what this time period is, go back 500 years. God calls a guy named Abram out of a place called Babylon, uh, which is modern-day Iraq. He says, I want you to leave your family, your nation, and I'm gonna, I want to take you to a land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make, make you a blessing to the world. Sounds like a good deal. So Abram leaves. He wanders down through the Middle East. He comes to Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. And God tells him, this is the land that I'm going to give to you, but you've got to wait another 500 years. Okay, so Abram has some kids, has some grandkids. They become the nation of Israel. They end up in Egypt as slaves. God sees the people being treated as slaves, and he makes it his plan to deliver them. He brings this guy Moses, who is an Israelite, to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. They come out of slavery. The Egyptian army is destroyed, and they come to the border of the promised land, the land that God promised to give to Abram, and Israel won't go in. 
They won't go in. Moses sent in 12 tribal representatives, and 10 of them come back and spoil the sales pitch for everybody else. And so Israel spends the next 40 years wandering around in the desert. And that is the context for this song. And so Moses writes this prayer. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And in case you haven't picked up on that, that's a crazy prayer for a people who have no home, who've been living in tents for the past 500 years, who've been wandering as vagabonds. Moses makes his home in God. And his justification for it comes in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I was a teaching assistant this past semester. I marked a lot of student papers and a lot of bad grammar. And in case you haven't already picked up on it, Moses goes, okay, past tense verb, past tense verb, present tense. Like, that's a big no-no. But he's doing this intentionally. Moses is pointing out the fact that God is self-referencing. What do I mean by that? Everything else in our world has to point to something else, has to reference something else as reason for their existence. So I am, I exist because my parents met 28 years ago, and we'll stop there. Uh, the tree, the tree exists because a seed fell from another tree and it sprouted and it formed a tree. But God is because he is. He is self-referencing. You are God. I've got a picture that's going to come up on the screen. This is a mayfly. You may see these in the summertime. Mayflies are not like God. They are not eternal. They are ephemeral. Ephemeral means short-lived. And mayflies actually are so short-lived that when people are thinking of what Latin name to give mayflies, they gave it a name based on the word ephemeral because the adult stage lives for less than 24 hours. Mayflies, like us and everything else in this world, are very, very ephemeral. And Moses' reasoning for making his home in God is that God is eternal. He is. And that surely is the safest place for him to make his home. But it begs the question, if God is eternal... God is our creator. God is our source. We all come from God. And if God is eternal, why are we so ephemeral? Why are we short-lived? And why is Moses so self-assured that he belongs not in an ephemeral world, but in eternity? Why is this? And so Moses is about to take us on a history lesson and give us the historical basis for the ephemeral life. Okay? It starts... In verse 3, you return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man. Pop quiz. What is the Hebrew word for man? No. Adam. Adam. 
You return man to the dust and say, return, O children of Adam. Moses is taking us back to the very first pages of his great work on the origin of all things. So out of the dust of the ground, God created man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And God made Adam a gardener, and he put him in a garden, and he gave him a gardening buddy, and they were supposed to take care of the garden together. And God put two trees in the middle of the garden. One of them was the tree of life. If they ate of this tree, they would live forever. But if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And we sadly all know how the story goes. They seize upon this opportunity to be gods for themselves, to determine for themselves how it was best for them to live, what was right and wrong, what was good and evil. And as a result, God kicks them out of the garden. They never touch the tree of life ever again. They die and are returned to the dust. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And this thousand year reference there is significant because there are a thousand years, almost exactly, that take place between the fall of Adam and the next reference that Moses is about to make. Now, interestingly, I have a different in the ESV. It reads, You sweep them away as with a flood. You sweep them away as with a flood. In the thousand years that follow after Adam's fall, humanity has lost all sense of what it means to live in light of eternity. We have embraced the ephemeral life. And so things like hate, anger, murder, lying, stealing, cheating, abuse, whatever, all these things have become the norm for humanity, and not only are we destroying ourselves, but all the rest of creation suffers under humanity's nearsightedness. And it, the scriptures actually say that God looked at humanity and he regretted that he made them. And it grieved him to his heart. And so God floods the earth to wash away all the filth and the mess that we have made. Have you ever longed for a fresh start? You know, like maybe, maybe you're coming to today and you're looking back on this past year and going, God, I just wish I could have a do-over. God is a God of do-overs but they come at a cost. And the cost comes in verse seven, for we are brought to an end by your anger. We're gonna come back to this idea later. It sounds pretty dismal right now, but don't worry, it's gonna get better. Um, the, uh, the third event that Moses draws our attention to is a personal one for him. He starts using personal pronouns. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence for all our days. Pass away under your wrath and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. 
Moses is now looking to Israel's present problem. They were saved from slavery in Egypt to be given a fresh start. Because humanity didn't have a knowledge of how to live anymore, God gave them a knowledge of that in his law, in his commandments. This is how you were created to live. And he brings them out of slavery into the promised land. But they won't, not only won't they go in, but they immediately start making ephemeral gods for themselves. Gods beside Yahweh God, the I am, the one who is. They start making gods out of wood and stone and gold. And so since Moses has gotten personal with us, let's you and I get personal right now. What are your ephemeral gods that you've been making in your life? I'll share with you that a god that ruled over my whole high school life was pornography. I'd say currently my struggle probably is with, I haven't been able to put words on it yet, but um, believing that my, my immediate impulse is to like, okay, I feel I should do this right now instead of pausing to reflect and go, Spirit, would you lead me into what I need to do next? Uh, I'd say that's probably my biggest problem at the moment. And so if there's any common thread behind why I don't stop to pray or why I procrastinate on the work that I'm supposed to do, it kind of all comes back to that. What's it for you? Uh, is it money? Is it alcohol? Is it cigarettes? Uh, is it a romantic relationship that you are holding on too tightly to? Is it body image, a job, your house, your kids, your spouse, uh, music? Education, entertainment. We could go on and on and on. All these things are good. God created all these things to be good in their place. So sex is good in marriage. Alcohol is good in moderation. Body image for health and well-being is good. Kids are good. You could go on and on. The problem, as Tim Keller writes about, is when good things become ultimate things. And when ephemeral things take the place of eternal satisfaction. And when we make our home in the ephemeral world for short-lived returns, it produces the life that Moses describes in verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone, and we fly away. Toil and trouble, toil and trouble. If you make money your God, you will chase after the next figure before you realize the wealth of opportunity that you already have. If you make a romantic relationship with your God as your God, codependency will ruin your ability to have a healthy, mutually satisfying relationship. All these things, when they become our gods, they produce a toilsome and troublesome life. And the insane thing about it is that we do this over and over and over and over again. And we ask, is there any way off this hamster wheel? And there is. And the answer that Moses finds is in the next two verses. He asks this question, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And it's a rhetorical question because the answer is nobody. Like, did any of you seriously come here today thinking, the best inspiration I can get for my next year is reflecting on the wrath and anger of God, right? Nobody thinks of that. But what Moses wants us to see in this 
is that God did not create us for this hamster wheel. God did not create us for this endless cycle of making ephemeral gods for ourselves. He created us for eternity. The lessons that we learn, the morals that we learn from Moses' history lesson are these. From the fall, we chose the ephemeral life for ourselves. From the flood, we need a fresh start, and it comes at the cost of our lives because as we learn from God's chosen people, knowing what is good and right is not enough to allow us to do it. Israel had the law, but they couldn't live it. They knew what the eternal life looked like, but they couldn't put it into practice. So we all know that our lives have an expiry date. We all want to make the most of the lives that we have. We all have this sense of eternity, and none of us know how to live a life of eternal significance. And this is where we must begin if we are to talk honestly with God about life. A friend sent me a quote this past week that said, uh, if I insist that I am permanent, then I'll fly away. But if I insist that only God is permanent, then he breathes his permanence on me. We must humble ourselves if we are to talk honestly with God. Moses recognizes his own helplessness as he writes in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Moses realizes for himself that in order for him to have a truly fresh start, he needed to be brought to an end. And if there was to be any other way, God had to do it himself. So what's God's solution? Well, God created this thing called atonement. It's this idea that if, if we were supposed to be brought to an end, God would appoint something else to be brought to an end in our place. And so Israel had the sacrificial system. They would sin and they would sacrifice, sin and sacrifice, and all these animals would be brought to an end in their place. And the sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be the first from the flock. It had to be without blemish. Because God needed his people to realize just how costly it was to have a fresh start. But this was not enough. Sacrifices were not enough. Because, as we know, Israel kept on sinning. And so God's solution to this is what we've been celebrating for the past several weeks. The coming of Christ, the incarnation, God made flesh, the eternal God entered into our ephemeral world and became one of us in the person of Jesus. And because he was both fully God and fully man, he was able to live the eternal life in this ephemeral world. And by this, he became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He died on the cross, and that is atonement. But it's still not enough. <clears throat> if all that Jesus did was die on the cross for our sins, that's not enough for a fresh start. Because all that atonement does is make peace between us and God for the things we have done and the things that we will do. It doesn't change how we will live. 
And so the answer to this is that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And this is significant for two reasons, because Jesus, number one, made a way for new life through death, not in spite of it, through death. And so he invites us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. We still must be brought to an end. In fact, baptism in many ways is modeled after the flood, that we are brought to an end. Our lives are brought to an end in baptism and we are raised up to a fresh start, to new life. So number one, Jesus made a way for new life through death, not in spite of it. And number two, Jesus didn't rise again so that we could live forever. He rose again to give us eternal life. And there's a difference between the two, because if all that he did was give us the ability to live forever, we would continue on in our toilsome, troublesome lives, and there would be no difference. But he rose from the dead to break the power of sin in our lives, to break the ephemeral life off of us, that we would live forever, so that we would not only know what is good and right, but that we would actually be able to do it. And how does he do this in us? Well, the same eternal spirit which filled Christ and motivated him and guided him for his earthly time is now the same spirit that lives in you and I, empowering us to live lives of eternal significance. This is a major difference between our relationship with God and Israel's relationship with God. You see, with Israel, their effort is what ensured that they would live the eternal life before God, and they were never able to do it. But in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God's Spirit is what empowers our eternal life in us. And so we can experience God's eternal life now. And this is why a life that is changed by the good news of Jesus will always be followed by the good works that Jesus did because his spirit is at work in us. So there's some, there's some questions that come from this. Again, going back to where Moses asks us to start, are we grieved by our sin? If God looked at the world and he was grieved by our sin, surely we ought to be. And so I want to read a scripture verse because sometimes I wonder if we don't appreciate grief. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So grief surely is a good thing. It's the start, but it doesn't have to be the end. That's not what God intended it for. So are we grieved by our sin? And are we grieved by our sin enough that we recognize, yes, these things in my life, these ephemeral gods need to die? We've already talked about this, but what are your ephemeral gods that need to die? Here's another question. Are we growing 
in the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these things which are evidence of the eternal life at work in us. Are we growing in these things? And related to this, do, do we know that the Holy Spirit is empowering us to live these things out. We're not doing it on our own. We're not like Israel who had to do it on their own effort. God has made a way to empower us by his spirit to experience the eternal life now. And are we doing this in community? Because the eternal life is not one lived in isolation. Someone once said that God himself has always existed in a sweet and holy society as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he intends the same for us, that we would walk out this eternal life together. And so if you're walking it alone, I encourage you, come and talk with James or come and talk with Spencer after this, this gathering and let's get you connected and be part of missional communities and be part of the eternal life with others. That's what God made us for. So here's our common ground. We all know that our lives have an expiry date. We all want to make the most of our lives. We all kind of want to stretch it into eternity as much as possible. And Jesus has made a way for our lives to be of eternal significance. So what becomes of the rest of our time-bound lives? Well, uh, jump with me down to verse 17. Verse 17, Moses writes, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. See, Moses knows that his home is in eternity, but that doesn't stop him from doing things in this life. Uh, some people have said that... Uh, uh, Christians are so heavenly minded they have no earthly good, but that never ought to be so for us. Because just like Moses, though our home is with our Father in the coming kingdom of his Son, the eternal kingdom of Jesus, which he's promised to bring, though our home is there, we have work to do here. And what is that work? It is to prepare the way for the Lord, it is to prepare the way for his kingdom to come. The key to this is found a couple of verses prior. It comes right after Moses' prayer about having pity on your servants. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. If we seek to prepare the way for God's kingdom to come into our lives, into this world, we cannot do it if we are not coming from a place of being satisfied in his steadfast love, being satisfied in the fact that God came to us, died for us, rose to give us new life, ascended and promises to make a home for us and to bring his kingdom one day. We cannot appropriately prepare the way if we're not rooted in that. But with that in mind, preparing the way for the kingdom of Jesus, I think, involves two things. It involves, number one, preparing people to receive him. 
Preparing the way for the kingdom of Jesus involves preparing people to receive him. So the question is, are we sharing the good news with others? Are we sharing this gospel with others? I've had amazing opportunities on long car rides with my colleagues to be able to, you know, just put something in about, uh, about our church and or missional communities. I actually had one opportunity where I got to read our missional community covenant to uh, a colleague of mine who's not a follower of Jesus. It was very interesting. But I find that people are more willing to talk about spiritual matters than we give them credit for. I think sometimes we live with this like fear that people are going to hate on us if they know we're a Christian. And I'm not sure that that's always the case. It might be, but I'm not sure that it always is. <laughs> um, and I would, I would add to this that preparing people to receive Jesus does not always mean that we must share about the death and resurrection of Jesus and its significance for us on the first time that we talk to that person. Okay, if, if I was thinking about this the other day, if God waited 2,500 years from the fall of Adam to introduce Christ to the world, surely we can wait a couple of conversations to introduce the significance of Christ to people because people need context. And so sometimes sharing the good news with others is not always immediately talking about the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Sometimes it is starting with this question that Moses asks us here that we've gone through of do we realize that we're we're helplessly living in a cycle of toil and trouble sometimes it's starting there and providing context for the good news of Jesus the second part of preparing the way for the kingdom of Jesus I believe involves preparing the world that is the the institutions the societies the cities the communities and workplaces of our world to receive him because where things like starvation or sickness or abuse illiteracy loneliness joblessness oppression slavery where poverty exists these are not compatible with God's eternal kingdom and so part of preparing the way for his kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven is by changing these places and if you're not involved in a missional community finding a mission to prepare the way for the Lord in your neighborhood, I encourage you to talk with Spencer James afterwards again and get connected because missional communities are how we are involved in changing these institutions, societies, cities, communities, and workplaces of our world. Are we working to see it in Guelph as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven, is our work motivated by the steadfast love of God as displayed in God's incarnation, his death and resurrection? Because the steadfast love of God, a knowledge of this, is what kept the church in Alexandria, in Syria, to care for the sick when everybody else evacuated the city to escape the plague. The knowledge of the steadfast love of God is what opened the first public schools and brought women to them. A knowledge of the steadfast love of God is what brought doctors into villages where people were dying of leprosy. A knowledge of the steadfast love of God is what brought hospitals to India. It's what ended the African slave trade, and it's what gave African-American slaves hope in the midst of their slavery because they knew that their black lives mattered to Jesus. 
The knowledge of the steadfast love of God is what brought a humble woman from Macedonia to the slums of Calcutta to care for the ones that nobody else would care for. It's a knowledge of the steadfast love of God that brought five men from America to share the love of God with the violent Hoarani tribe, only to be killed by them, and then brought their wives in afterwards to extend forgiveness. If the steadfast love of God is what brought Christ from heaven to earth in the first place, surely the steadfast love of God is what will continue to bring heaven to earth in our lives. Because the good news, the hope of the gospel is that death is swallowed up by life. The ephemeral is swallowed up by the eternal. May that be so for us. So here's our common ground again. We all know our lives have an expiry date. We all want to make the most of them. We all have this sense of eternity and want to extend our lives into it as much as possible. And Jesus has made a way for our lives to be of eternal significance. And until he comes, we prepare the way for his good eternal kingdom. So would you end and pray with me as we read the final verses of this psalm? We pray, return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Amen.